You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We are, uh, as you hear, diving back into our study in Colossians, and so we're going to kind of just going to get to it. Uh, I've got way more to say than I have time to say, so we're going to jump in. Let me kind of catch you up where we've been and where we're headed over the next couple of months, if you haven't been with us. Uh, Colossians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a young church in the city of Colossae. Uh, it's a pretty young church, but it's growing. It's exciting, but because it's made up of people, there's problems. Uh, sometimes people ask me how Providence is going, how church planting is, and this is really the best explanation that I can give. It, it's exciting, God's at work, but there's people, so there's all kinds of problems. That's how church goes. So Paul writes this letter specifically to address a major problem that's happening in their community at this time. And the problem is essentially this. These young Christians want to grow. They're eager. They want to learn more about God. They want to feel closer to God. They want to go deeper in their knowledge and their spiritual experience with God. That's not the problem. That, that desire is really good. But there are some teachers in their community who are saying, great. Like they're tapping into that desire and they're saying, if you want to go deeper with God, then you've got to get beyond the, the sort of basics of gospel 101. Like Jesus is great. You need him to, to get saved. But if you want to go deep, it's time for advanced level classes. And the gist of these advanced level classes is it's a little bit like your philosophy freshman class or your freshman philosophy class. Sounds really interesting, but at the end of the day, it's not very fruitful. And that's what's going on with them. It's philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. The gist of it is that they're basically kind of getting hardcore about tightening the rules asceticism, severe treatment of the body, observing special days and that sort of thing. And it feels like they're really getting serious with God. Um, But then Paul points out at the end of chapter 2 that these things, even though they have the appearance of wisdom, they actually are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. It's just glorified behavior management. You clean up over here, but you're dirty over here. So you clean that up, but there's dirt over here. And you're constantly hitting it like that game at uh, Gaddy's Pizza where you're hitting the moles and they just keep popping up. That's what behavior management is like. And that's why Paul pleads with them in what is the key verse in Colossians. It's in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He pleads with them. Just as you received Christ as the Lord, so walk in him. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words... The way that you go deeper with God, the way you get closer with God is the same way that you came to God. How did you come to God? By grace, through faith, in Christ. So just as you received him, by grace, through faith, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you learned it, abounding in thanksgiving. It's all about Christ. If you want to go deeper with God, Go deeper in the gospel. That's where we've been. That's chapters one and two in a nutshell. It's all about who Jesus is, his supremacy over everything, his sufficiency for everything, and who we are in him. This wonderful access to the life with God that we now have. Chapters three and four get very practical then about the second half of that key verse, about walking in him. They get very practical how we grow the The main imagery is that of putting off and putting on. Putting off our old self, our old way of life, and putting on our new life 
in Christ. These chapters deal with uh, our personal struggle with sin. They deal with how we put on and grow in Christ-like character. Deals with how we exist in community, like in our relationships, but also in worship. It even addresses very specific relationships that most of us have, right? Um, Parents and kids and employers and um, employees, even our non-Christian friends. It gets very practical about how to relate, what the new life looks like in all these realms. And so we're turning the corner from who we are in Christ to how we walk in him. And it's a pretty abrupt turn because the first thing you see in verse 5 is he says, put to death what is earthly in you. That's not soft language. It's not like push it over in the corner, set it aside. It's like put it to death. Verse 5, he's going to begin with our personal struggles with sin. Put to death what is earthly in you, the, the old life, the way that you used to think and act just according to your natural abilities. Put it to death. If you've ever uh, gone on a diet, um, I hope you haven't for your sake. What happens on a diet, I discovered when I did the Whole30 this year, is that I, my old self ate in certain ways. Whether I thought about it or not, I just had all these habits. And then when I took on this new way of eating, uh, I set my mind to it. My whole family was doing it. I was all in. Attitude was good. Everything was good. You know what wasn't good? The desires that reside in my body that I had developed over 40 years of eating however I want to. So even though I'm trying to like not eat sugar and grains and all the stuff you're not supposed to eat, you know what? My body has desires for those things. And what I have to do in those moments is put to death that craving, that desire. That's what Paul's saying. We all have a way of living apart from Christ. And even though we've died and our life is hidden with Christ and God, those desires, those cravings still linger in here. And they raise their head up and we've got to put them to death. And so he gives us uh, two lists in this paragraph. The first list has predominantly to do with sexual sins, and the second one has to do with sins of speech. And I cannot think of two more relevant topics for our culture when we're talking about how our, our, the way of life we live apart from Christ. And so we're going to take two weeks to address them. Today we'll talk about sexual sin, and next week uh, Mark drew the, the big straw, so he gets uh, sins of speech. Now, as soon as I say that, most of you feel some resistance toward this topic. Most of you do not want to talk about this today. I mean, it's a sunny day. Can we, it's South by Southwest. Can we just have fun? Uh, I discovered this the hard way. There's a whole spectrum of people. Some of you just feel awkward. You know, like you're just hoping I don't make a really bad joke that makes you feel more awkward. For some of you, this is an area of, of real hurt. You know, like you've been violated or abused You've been through relationships where you put your hope in sex and it it didn't deliver and you were hurt by it and you don't know how to think about it now. Now, For some of you, it's beyond that. You don't want to talk about this because you want to hold on to something. When I was on staff with crew, I uh, told our students, hey, you guys plan an event and I'll I'll do whatever you want me to do in that event. You should never say that before you know what it is they want you to do. So they decided that we would do an event on the West Mall, which is like the public traffic square on campus. And the event would be about sex. And I, my job was to start the event. So I'm on the West Mall where people are just trying not to look at you if you're standing in the free speech area. Free speech means don't listen to that guy. And so thousands of students just walking by. And my job is to like gather them to come over here 
so that we can spend an afternoon on the UT campus talking about sex. Which, in, in my naivete, I thought would be easy. I thought, well, most of them statistically are having sex, they're watching sex, they're thinking about it certainly all the time. This will be easy. Of course they want to talk about it. No, they did not want to talk about it for the same reasons that maybe you don't want to talk about it. We, even Christians, tend to treat sex and sexuality as something that's like really private, like so private that it kind of belongs to us and not to God. We're ashamed, uh, we're addicted, we think God wants to limit our joy in this area, and so we just, we just don't want to talk about it. But Paul is asking us to talk about it. He's asking us to face it squarely because it's a problem. It was a problem in his culture. It's a problem in our culture for sure. It's a problem in the church. It's a problem in this church. It's a problem in my own heart. And that's probably the best place to start the conversation is to say, this is a real struggle for everyone in the room. In different ways, in different seasons, for different reasons, but a real struggle nonetheless. None of us walked in here clean in this area. So we need to think clearly about the issues. Most of all, we need to hear from God. I think that's my goal today. My goal isn't to make you feel bad so that you'll try harder. You already know that doesn't work. The goal today is that we would hear from God. That we would just, even in small ways, open up that place in our lives that we've kept locked and invite God to come in and speak to us. So in that vein, I'm just going to stay really close to the text, like the the actual words on the page. If you want to open to Colossians 3, it'll be easy to follow along. We need clarity. I think clarity will help us talk honestly about where we are and about what we can do. So open up to Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul gives us five words to give us clarity. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here are the words. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, technically that's six words, but one describes the other. He starts with sexual immorality, and so that's where we're going to start. This term is used to describe a wide range of things. But most often when you look at it in the scriptures, it's referring to fornication, which is a word that just means sex outside of the context of marriage. Um, So, to be clear, the way the Bible defines marriage is a man and a woman, and the way that defines sex is sex between a man and a woman who are married. And so we need to see that God's not against sex at all. He's for it. He created it. Like, you just open up and start reading in Genesis, and you see quickly that when God made man and woman, he made them to live naked, like with no clothes on. Clearly, he is for sex with these two people. The first command he gives them is to be fruitful and multiply. Well, how do you do that? You know how that works. (laughs) Right? So, this is how he made them to exist. It's part of the mission or the purpose that he's called them to. God is absolutely for sex. Even after sin enters the world and sex is broken and twisted and it's misused for all kinds of reasons, God doesn't all of a sudden go, okay, I'm not for it anymore. This is crazy. He's still, it's still celebrated and honored within the context that he designed it for. 
He includes a whole book in the Bible called Song of Solomon. I don't think it's good like nighttime reading with your kids. It celebrates graphically marital sex. I'll give you one not so graphic verse. Uh, In chapter 5, the husband says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. These are all just sensual, delightful things. He says, I drink my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love. And Song of Solomon is just one love drunk fest between a husband and a wife. Clearly God's for it. Clearly God celebrates it in this context. God designed sex for our enjoyment, uh, for the mission that he's called us to, and even for our worship. We experience something of God in worship when we have sex as he designed it. But the Bible also tells us that sex outside of that context, outside of God's design, can bring tremendous damage and harm to our own souls and to people around us. All that to say, the command isn't to put to death sexual desire. The command is to put to death sexual immorality. Those are different things. The definition of uh, God's design for sex is not hard to understand. Let's see, man, a woman, married, got it. It's, It's pretty easy, isn't it? Yet somehow this conversation is so murky in our culture and even within the church. And I think that the reason it's murky is because we have all kinds of attitudes and views about sex and sexuality that... We haven't even thought of. They're just cultural norms, and we've let them sort of sink into us, and we act as if they're true, and it it runs contrary to what God says. For instance, we hear this growing up as kids about everything. We tell our kids this, and so it's no wonder we think this when it comes to to sexuality. Uh, You should do what makes you happy. Like, this is like the guiding principle in our culture. Does it make you happy? You should do it. You should do what you want. And this is super easy in our culture. If you're hungry, you just eat. There's food everywhere. If you're tired, take a nap. It's Austin. Nobody works anyway. (laughs) You want a massage? You should go get a massage. You want to go on a vacation? You should do that. Right? It's no different with sex. You have sexual desires? You should do that. The only question in the realm of sexuality that's important really is, is do you want to? Does it make you happy? That's just the rationale. And so you hear people say all the time, what two consenting adults do or want to do in their own time, that's none of our business. They're just doing what makes them happy. But is God happy? That's the question. Is God happy about that? It's weird how we don't think to ask that. Just because something makes you happy doesn't mean it's good for you. And the research shows this over and over. I read some really sad research this week. Uh, Here's one. This is a a study that was done among uh, teens. And among all kinds of damage that it's doing among teens, this one uh, uh, psychologist says that there's a great psychological cost, and particularly to teenage girls. Um, This won't surprise you, but when they pull teenage boys and girls who are sexually active, boys are actually pretty happy. Like They have lower levels of depression, and higher levels of happiness. However, girls aren't. Girls have higher levels of depression. They're six times more likely to have attempted suicide. That is tragic. So let me just talk to the young guys here. Just because it feels good to you 
does not mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's good for you. And I can tell you statistically, empirically, it is not good for her. She may be willing. She may be enjoying it, but it's short-lived. You're damaging her soul and yours. You just don't know it as quickly as she does. This study's conclusion is that the sexual revolution is taking a physical and psychological toll on girls. So you may say, okay, fine. Having sex outside of marriage, that's wrong. Going all the way is wrong. But like, you know, short of that, there's a lot of gray here, you know, pastor. And most of the time when people are fighting for gray, it means they're fighting for something that they want to hold on to. They're not trying to have an honest conversation. So let me just give you a couple little insights here. Anytime that you're trying to figure out what I can do, you're not asking the question, what does God want me to do? The question isn't, you know, can I do this and I won't be squashed by God immediately, right? The question is, is can I bring God into this? Like, can I envision, in whatever I'm doing, in, in word or deed or anything, can I envision Jesus being there going, yes, I love that. That is, that is excellent. Right? If Jesus can't be with you, cheering you on, you shouldn't be doing it. So we're trying to figure out what can we get away with instead of how can I, how can I walk with God in this? All of our justifications are really rooted in the same thing, and that is the desire to run our own lives. This morning at Gospel Community, at our Gospel Community, uh, Karina shared this story about last week they were driving across the bridge on Mopac, and they looked over, and if you made that drive last week, you saw the kite festival. Just thousands of kites everywhere. It's, it's really cool. And uh, their child saw one kite that was way off, like way off kind of even by itself and high, and it was like it really stuck out. And they thought, maybe, maybe that kite's been like let loose. And then David said, well, no, that can't be, because in order for it to fly correctly, it's got to be tethered to something. And there's this song by a Beautiful Eulogy called, it's on the album Satellite Kite, but the, the pastor, as he's talking about kites, says this, you know, imagine you're a kite. You're up there in the air, you're soaring, you're beautiful, people are stopping to look at you, and traffic is backing up. Now, if you were a kite, you might think at some point, ah, man, if I could just get free of this string, then, then I could really be free. But the reality is, is that it's the string being tethered that allows that kite to soar. And as soon as you cut it, the kite won't soar. It'll come spiraling down. We want to call the shots in our own life. We think that being tethered to God and what he says about sex is limiting. And if we could just get free of that, man, then we could be sexually free. And the reality is, is that no, if you want a a, a sex life that soars, that is beautiful and majestic and wonderful and worshipful, then learn what God says and tether yourself to it. If you get away from that, your life is going to spiral. And all of the evidence points to that reality. Isn't that what our culture is doing sexually, just spiraling? Already you can see how much we need this text. We're only one word into the list. We're going to go faster from here on out. All right, second word, impurity. This word means to be stained or corrupted. We use the phrase impure motives all the time, right? It it means to be doing something maybe with some good motives, but also some other ones, some mixed motives. And if you put any bad motive, no matter what the good motives are, then it's, it's impure all of a sudden, right? 
So the, the picture is for a Christian is someone who's kind of got one foot in what God says about sex and sexuality. And then they've got kind of the other foot in what maybe the culture says or what they want to think. And the result is, is that there's impurity. We, we've corrupted and stained what God intends and what God says. Lots of things fall into this category, crude humor to the barrage of images that we get every day. The, the obvious glaring application of, of this category is pornography. Um, pornography is not a physical act with someone else, but it, it is defiling. It does stain and corrupt and pervert our minds and our souls and everything that God says about humanity. We justify these kinds of sins by saying that, you know, it's not hurting anyone. But it is hurting someone. Let's not talk about the culture. Let's just talk about the church. Statistically, 64% of Christian men say that they look at pornography once a month. 15% of Christian women look at pornography once a month. That's not out there. That's in here. It's definitely a problem. Marianne Layden, who's the uh, co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the University of Pennsylvania, said that pornography is the most concerning thing to psychological health that she knows of in our culture. It's not hurting anyone. Pornography is addictive. One researcher says, for those who feel like they're addicted, it's actually harder to overcome than cocaine addiction. Uh, He says, pornography is damaging our relationships by creating unrealistic expectations and unhealthy experiences around sex. Here's Layden's observation. Pornography is raising expectations and demands for types and amounts of sexual experiences, and at the same time, it's reducing our ability to experience sex. It's it's creating all kinds of, of images and situations and experiences and reducing our ability to even do those things. That's how tragic it is. It's hurting us. Let me just say that I think one way that impurity creeps into our lives is just the way we trivialize sex. Sex is this sacred, wonderful thing that God gave. But we cheapen it. We cheapen it with our language. We cheapen it with jokes. We cheapen it with all of the euphemisms that we have related to sex. The problem in our culture is not that we think too much about sex. It's that we think too little of it. We denigrate it. We just make it common. We, uh, We take good wine, what God created, and we throw some old wine in there. It's impure. In Genesis 1 and 2, and in, uh, God brings the man and the woman together, and he, he says, the two shall become one flesh. And in, and in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about this event, and he says, look, this is hard to explain, and it's mysterious, but I'm telling you, this coming together of a man and the woman into one flesh is a picture of the gospel. It depicts the union of Christ and his church. And the union of a man and a woman coming to one flesh, sex is the symbol of that union. And so when you treat sex as something else, when you use it in some other way, you desecrate the symbol. You mar the picture of the gospel that God has given us. For the Christian, the implications are just are mind-bending, to be honest. If you read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, there's a whole problem there. Uh, but here's what he says. He basically says that um, your, the parts of your body belong to Christ. They're actually part of him. 
he is a part of the parts of my body. And so what they were doing is they were even involving sex in their worship of with like cult prostitutes. And what he was saying to them is like, when you take the members of your body, which, of which Christ belongs, and then you engage in, in sexual immorality with a woman who's not your wife, you bring Jesus into that act. And that, ah, I hate to even think about that. He says, shall I take the parts, the body parts of Christ and make them be joined with sexually immoral women? Never. It's unthinkable. And now you see why Paul says in Colossians 3, it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Like this is just the kind of stuff uh, that makes God angry. And his wrath is coming on these things. Third and fourth words. Passions and evil desires. Passions are basically just whatever inclination comes to you. It's kind of like your stomach growls, you eat something, you're tired, you sleep, that sort of thing. Whatever you feel like doing, you just do it. You don't even think about it. You don't consult God about it. It's a desire. You just do it. And it's that kind of basic sexual desire that Paul's talking about here. It just means you do whatever you want without regard to outcomes. Evil desire. um, I'm glad he puts the word evil in here and he does it on purpose because desire itself is not bad. Desire is used in all kinds of good ways in the scriptures. The psalmists desire God. It's evil desires. And the picture is when your desires take you outside the realm of God's boundaries, outside the realm of God's design. So um, you can see that Paul's starting with sort of the physical outward things, sexual morality and impurity, but now he's diving into the level of desires, He's saying it it doesn't, it's not out here, it starts in here. Which uh, is contrary to a phrase that I hear a lot, which is like when something, when somebody falls into some kind of sexual sin, one of the things they'll just say is like, man, it just happened. I I don't know, I don't know what happened, it just happened. Well, look, there's a progression here from desire to behavior, from heart to body. This is how all sin works. Here's how James, uh, the brother of Jesus, says it. He uses the imagery of a fish getting caught on a hook. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The fish gets caught because he wants to eat the bait. Right? The fish can't say, I don't know what happened. I was just swimming around and all of a sudden this hook fell in my mouth. He can't say that. That's not how it happened. The fish was lured. He was enticed by his own desire. He was just swimming around and then he he saw something flashy. He thought, I wonder what that is. He swam over there, right? He swam around it for a while and he looked at it and then he did one of those little nab things when you think you've got them but you don't. He just kind of gets a little nibble. And he swam around a little bit more. But all the while, he's cultivating that desire, isn't he? He cultivates to the point where he just, he just has to now. Like there's no use trying to resist. And he takes it. He dives, he goes all in on that juicy morsel. And then he finds out, this, isn't a, this is a plastic lure. This is bait. You know what? He can't complain. He can't make excuses. 
Even when he's up there in that guy's hand and his life is just spinning out of control, he can't even in that moment be like, ah, it just happened. It never just happens. It's the end of a long process that starts in your heart. It starts with wanting something, desiring something that God hasn't given you, and then cultivating that desire to the point where you just can't resist anymore. This is what Paul wants you to see, that sexual purity is not just about restraining the members of your body. It is that. It's also about sanctifying the desires of your heart. And that gets us to the last word, which is covetousness. Uh, You're familiar with this. This is the want something that God hasn't given you. In this context, it's wanting to satisfy sexual desires in ways that God hasn't provided for you to satisfy them by. So when a married person has sex with his or her spouse, they can give thanks for it. Like it would not, well, it could be a little weird, but it wouldn't be inappropriate for before sex for me to sing a worship song in my bedroom. There'd be nothing more appropriate to give thanks and to worship God for this gift. Because God's provided it. It's worshipful. But any sexual desire you can't satisfy with thanksgiving in your heart to God. That's covetousness. That's wanting something that God hasn't given you. Again, Paul starts with the symptoms. Sexual morality, impurity. That's, that's just the stuff on the surface of culture. But then he kind of goes deeper into the sickness, which is the cultivated lusts of our hearts, the passions and the evil desires. And now he lands on the cause, covetousness, greed, wanting something that God hasn't given you. And he calls that idolatry. Idolatry is simply putting something in the place of God. So when we sin sexually, at least in that moment... We put the satisfaction of our own desires above God's desires. We do what we want to do rather than consider what is good or what God wants us to do. And it's idolatry. We think that sex will give us something that God won't or can't, but in reality, the Bible says God longs to give you so much more, more than sex ever could on its own. Probably the number one thing that I hear in our culture is that sex is just physical. It's not about God. It's just physical. It's like a person's body and another person's body. It's just chemicals and flesh and stuff. But idolatry isn't just physical, right? Idolatry is a term of worship. And we don't typically think about sex and worship in the same category. But in Paul's day, sexual immorality was very connected to worship. I mentioned this earlier, but in lots of pagan worship rituals, there were prostitutes in the temple. Now, it was totally wrong and heinous, but at least they recognized that sex isn't just physical. Like, there's something mysterious and powerful going on here. That's why they connected it to their worship. It belongs to the category of worship. When we take sex outside of God's design and we use it for self-gratification, then we're worshiping our desires above God. We want something so much that we lose our contentment in God. That's the nature of covetous sexual desire. Now, don't get me wrong. The the physical consequences involved with sexual morality are serious. 
and growing, by the way. Uh, research tells us that uh, more people are having more sex at younger ages. That's not a surprise to any of you. But then it also overwhelmingly shows us that there's lots of uh, accompanying consequences physically to that. Uh, one of which is the, the rampant uh, expansion of sexually transmitted diseases, especially among 15 to 24-year-olds. So 15 to 24-year-olds are a quarter of the sexually active population, but they, they comprise half of the new STD cases reported every year. It's a big deal. There are definitely physical consequences, but it's worse than that. It's not just physical. In fact, related to this specific thing, uh, there was a, an article in the New York Times that Tim Keller references where um, they're basically talking about, like, it's, it's in relation to all the safe sex advertising that's been barraging our culture uh, for the last number of years. And the message is simply like, look, it, it's just it's too dangerous now. Like, casual sex, the days of, of, you know, just sort of thinking of it as just physical. It doesn't matter what you think. It's too dangerous. We can't afford to do this anymore. And then there was a response from the younger generation, right? There was all these letters coming in. And the gist of the letters was this. Uh, basically people saying like, so it's the younger generation talking to the baby boomers who are saying, hey, no more. And the younger generation is basically saying, wait a minute, you had yours and now you're trying to take ours away? And there was, there was anger coming. And they were saying like, look, I know it's dangerous. I get it. I see the research, but it's my right. It's my body. I want it. And I'll deal with the consequences if they come. Well, that's just not another physical appetite, right? Uh, Keller proposes, if you want to talk about physical appetites, let's just talk about sugar. That's a physical appetite. It's a, it's a strong one. But if you're a diabetic and somebody's telling you, hey, if you keep eating sugar, you're going to die. What, what, what do you do? You say, wait a minute. You've had yours. I want my sugar. No, you just you stop eating sugar. It's hard, but you do it because you don't want to die. Sex isn't like that. It's much stronger. It's much more mysterious and powerful. And part of the problem in our culture is we don't respect the power that sex has. We treat it too casually. And then it just overtakes our lives. Sex, as God intends it, is body and soul. Body, it is physical, and soul. There's a very famous Seinfeld scene called This and That. George and Elaine, who were friends, and they dated at one time, and now they're just friends. But then they start to realize they, maybe they would like to, you know, have sex. And so they're on the couch, and they have this whole conversation about how they can uh, have that, and they point to the bedroom, and this, meaning just their friendship. And, and the whole conversation is a series of arrangements and agreements how that can't interfere with this. Like, this is good, and that is good, and we need to keep them separate. That's the whole conversation. And it's kind of funny when you're watching it and then you realize it's based on a real conversation that the creator of Seinfeld had. This and that. Now, in an unusual uh, moment for Seinfeld, the episode plays out according to reality. Because what happens is, is they try to, you know, proceed with the this and that arrangement. But Elaine, you know, begins to have feelings. She starts to get jealous for all of the, you know, the women coming in and Jerry. Jerry's like, no, 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 no. This is not connected to that. It's just physical. And it wasn't just physical for Elaine. It began to deteriorate their whole relationship. You know why? Because it's body and soul. When body and soul go together, it's mysterious and it's powerful. 
That's why if you talk to an older married couple, they'll tell you, sex gets better and better, even though my body gets worse and worse. Because it's not just about the body. It's body and soul. Sex is a way for one person to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Like, I'm going all in with you. And we use it another way, you cheapen it. When you have sex with someone who's not your spouse, you're essentially saying, I give you my body, but then I want it back. I'll give you a glimpse of my soul, but then I, I want it back. You can't have the whole thing. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you want to be physically one with somebody that you're not personally one with, you're bringing into your soul something that will destroy you. You're trying to live your life in a this and that scenario, and it just, it's not. It's this and that. It's body and soul. Um, in relation to this, I was reading a book called Hooking Up Culture, which is just the culture of casual sex among people. Uh, this is what he says. This is kind of his conclusion. The most alarming feature uh, is that sexual activity neurochemically secretes the chemicals of bonding. So he goes into detail about this, how it's different chemicals in girls and, and guys, but it's secreting chemicals that are related to bonding when you have sex. But the hooking up culture increasingly divorces sexual activity from relational commitment. This works against the natural secretions of a body and leads to potential problems for each of the couples. Humans aren't wired, so the authors are arguing, to hook up. They're wired to love in lasting commitments. Breaking down lasting commitments works against what the brain is telling the person to be and to do. Hooking up can create young people who break down their potential for connectivity. Some of you have experienced that. You have a hard time connecting with the opposite sex. And it's because you've, you've built up patterns of denying what your brain is telling you and trying to separate this and that. Related to all of this, uh, I love a phrase that Dallas Willard has. Uh, he has this great phrase in his commentary in Matthew 5 called, he just says, being at home with God. In Matthew 5, Jesus is confronting all of the conventional wisdom of the day, all the norms of how people think about stuff. And so he begins with uh, saying, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. And his hearers are like, yeah, check. I have, I have not killed anyone. But then he says, yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm talking about that, but also I'm saying, just because you haven't killed someone doesn't mean you're at home with God in your relationships. Because you have in your heart anger and malice and contempt toward people, people made in the image of God, and you're writing them off as nothing. You're not okay. You're not at home with God. And when it comes to the topic of sex, same thing happens. The, the people think to themselves, oh, I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. I'm good. And Jesus says, well, wait, just because you haven't committed adultery doesn't mean you're at home with God sexually. Because in your heart, you have cultivated lusts for people that are not your husband or your wife. And in the same way that anger and malice and contempt leads to murder, and in the same way those thoughts are murderous, so is lust. It objectifies people who are made in the image of God. We're not all the way at home with God sexually, are we? Now, here's the good news, and then I'm going to wrap this up. After he gets through with this list, 
And after he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, he says this in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. I want you to see that the language is past tense. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, he's not saying, well, this is, this is where you're at, good luck. He's saying, no, 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 no. What I'm describing here, a commitment to these things, an addiction to these things, that, that's how you once walked when you were living in them. You weren't at home with God, you lived in sin. But now Jesus has brought us to God. He's made us sons and daughters of God. We live with God. We're at home with God because we're in his family. Now, in any house, if you've ever lived in a house with anybody, you know there's, there's tension and conflict and things are not always right with each other. If you're a Christian, that's where you are. To the degree that you think, I am, I am not at home with God sexually. To that degree, God is just inviting you to get right with him on this. He's not kicking you out of the house. He's not telling you to earn your way back in. He's saying, no, this is, this is my house. You belong here. Let's, let's get right. The wrath of God actually speaks to the love of God. If he didn't get angry about this, how could you say that he's loving? If he was just like, yeah, do what makes you happy. It's just your body. Yeah, your life's going to spin out of control, but whatever. That's no love at all. The fact that he gets angry about it means he wants your good means that his love is strong, stronger than the temptations you feel, and he will come for you with that kind of love. Jesus took the wrath that we deserve upon himself, stripped naked, put out for open shame so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. Now listen, there's a lot of practical things that we need to do to put sin to death, to put sexual sin to death, lots of things. Uh, I decided not to go into that kind of detail today. What I'm going to do is just, I'll post something this week on our Facebook page that will, that will help you and give lots of practical helps for this. I felt like it will be most helpful is that we get some clarity around what it is we're talking about. What is sexual sin? What are the dynamics and complexities of it? Because we need that. And I think if you get clear about that, about God's design for it and how, how far off we are from it, you'll be compelled to pursue the means it takes to fight against it. And so today, I think the best thing we can do is simply turn to God. Just simply come to God where we are, saying thank you for speaking into our lives. Help me be at home with you in this. And so in that vein, I'm just going to close with this. This is the song we sang earlier from Psalm 51, and as we were singing it, I thought that that is a perfect prayer for us. So maybe you just want to close your eyes and think reflectively. I'll try to read slow. But let's make this a prayer. Let's make this a a corporate turning to God. Have mercy on me, God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. But you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your spirit from me, but restore me to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You don't delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.